0: Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Another Brick in the Wall, a podcast on radio and camera that focuses on materials, construction and architecture. My name is Pedro Clark and as usual I'll be your host for this episode where we'll be talking to Irina Miadrogovic vela the head of the department for the Department of Architecture and Urban Design at the Faculty of the Built Environment at the University of Malta. I met Irina last year when I came over to Malta to teach a workshop on participatory architecture. On the way in from the airport, she was talking to me about Malta, its obsession with stone, and later I discovered that she'd written a PhD on a stereotomic approach to regional digital architecture. So quickly it became obvious that I should have Irina on this show to talk about stone and its modern potential, as well as where it came from and where it could go. Irina, thank you very much for accepting this invitation. First
1: of all, Thank you for for having me. The PhD started with research in stone. Um, My my background, my master's was in digital architecture. And so living in Malta, where the only traditional material for building was stone, the idea was to combine in PhD research, uh, digital knowledge digital modeling and on digital tools with uh, the dominant traditional material of Malta which is which is limestone so it started from kind of let's do something with stone and digital architecture Um, as I got into that I understood the notion of stereotomy which is kind of geometry behind uh, cutting stone but then as I started researching and this is quite an interesting topic you start understanding that it's really such a multifaceted topic because it involves material knowledge and geometric knowledge, uh, knowledge of two tool, available tools, proficient knowledge of, of geometry, Comes this kind of discipline that was uh, used as much as by masons in science by geometers. Descriptive geometry was developed from, from stereotomy, the kind of understanding of three-dimensional space and its representation on two-dimensional paper. So so then that kind of became this understanding that uh, stereotomy really requires um, process, uh, right? That you can't just achieve something to look certain way. You really need to understand, as I said. The material and the tools that you have and, um, and geometries that can be achieved with that material with those tools so it's a it became a kind of much more than investigation into stone uh, eventually
0: thanks irina and we've gone straight into the topic which is fascinating but maybe i'll ask you to take a step back and give us a bit of information about the jargon because some of the people listening might not be as familiar as you are with the terminology So could you try succinctly to tell us what is stereotomy?
1: First to uh, cutting of solids. Um, So that also, even in the word itself, it kind of implies that it's more than cutting just stone, because it was even in carpentry. Uh, So in that sense, it is a discipline that combines, as I said, geometry and structures, on-site masonry and technical drawing, drafting, representation of the volumes on the two-dimensional paper.
0: What about false work?
1: False work is uh, the substructure, the temporary structure, usually built out of timber, uh, that is done before the kind of store- stone starts working. So it's a structure that needs to be in its place, let's say, until you put the keystone the last Hussure that makes the arch uh, pick up the forces and, and then uh, the centering, false work can be removed. It can be as geometrically complex as the, the stone vault, let's say. Um, and because of that complexity, you will notice in Gothic cathedrals, it's used repetitively and they also use certain tricks like, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly, but Pierre the Terre, I think, which is kind of this corbelling stone at the very top, so you can put false at the very top, so you don't have to put it from the floor up. It can be used for the vault. And an ashlar? Ashlar means it's a stone that is dressed, that is cut. Uh, so a voussoir is, is a type of ashlar, uh, but any kind of stone that is cut, uh, dressed, as it said, it would be an ashlar. A tre is a French word, and it's a stereotomic drawing. And it's a very specific type of drawing because the construction procedure kind of is embedded in that drawing. Uh, so it not only shows the shape of the stone and the shape of the sides of the stone, but also it represents the geometric procedure that defines how the, the stone needs to be cut to, to get that geometric shape. Because don't forget... Um, The stone needs to be fully dressed and rigorously defined geometrically before it goes up in the world. So you can't kind of take it up, oh, it doesn't fit, come, bring it down, trim it a bit, take it up. So I think that is amazing thing about stereotomy, the way it developed before digital tools and before even descriptive geometries for very formalized knowledge on the projection geometry and so on, you could do these amazing things like um, city festival of City Hall of Arla, got Gothic cathedrals, where you have this amazing stone vaults, small pieces of stone precisely cut and precisely put in place. Really, that is where I, my fascination with the with the discipline comes from.
0: Reading through your work, I think the thing that fascinated me the most was the precision that all the, the work required and and how a trait was so much more than just a drawing. It was, it was a drawing and a procedure and it allowed people to see how things would come together. Uh, we talk a lot about how an architect might design to three millimeter precision, but a builder builds to, if we're lucky, three centimeter precision. And some of that with stereotomy just couldn't work. So here we're with some very primitive tools Talking about some very very precise uh, measurements and construction, which is fascinating.
1: Another interesting thing that was tied to the whole thing—it's um, uh, control and, and power with the knowledge of this prof- proficient knowledge of geometry, because uh, it would be a stone mason, a master mason who would have this knowledge, and you have the you know the secret of the lodges and this knowledge that wasn't widely spread on ha- how you achieve this and then with uh, Philippe de Lorme he was the first one to uh, try to distribute in the in drawing format uh, this knowledge on stereotomy and communicate it to the architects and he says in his text that architects must not have the knowledge of stereotomy so it becomes almost this power struggle of uh, who is doing what and who is you know, told what to do which again if you look through the history there is it was even what you would have uh, contemporary terms, like a Facebook spat, sp- but at the time it was a, a lot of writing against uh, a mathematician, against a mason of what is the correct use of you know geometry, correct use of stereotomy. Uh, so I think there is even this kind of almost a drama <laughs> soap opera behind it, um, and kind of uh, who is the person in charge, uh, you know, architect or storm mason. So I think it, it's very interesting even in terms of history, um, and then the way it culminates in the 19th century with this, um, what they refer to as acrobatic architecture, which is really this kind of flying vault that even when you look at, as you said, you, you have to admire how it's done and it confuses your understanding of force flow. So you really don't even understand how can this possibly stand as you said, especially with the knowledge and tools and techniques of the time. Uh, But then uh, with the 20th century, it was a question of new materials, concrete and and steel. But also, I think it was a cultural shift towards um, this idea of building has to be stable, but also look stable. And this was considered too frivolous. Uh, So I think it was a cultural shift and also cost and introduction of new materials. And needs obviously in building construction after World War One, even more after World War II, that the stone kind of lost this excitement and probably in most of Europe reduced to cladding.
0: I think from that I'd like to touch upon uh, this idea of false work and how it becomes or, or was a precursor to modern day form work. And at the same time, how through your research you started to, to see and to discuss whether. With the cost of labour where they are today, it makes sense to produce so much false work to put together stereotomy because at the end of the day, it increases the cost and it's much, much higher than almost the cost of the stone once it's already been prepared.
1: Yeah, yes exactly and there is amazing research into stereotomy and contemporary masonry construction coming from places like ETH Zurich and Block research group also uh, professor Falakara from Politecnico di Bari and um, amazing stuff is coming out and and Arma- there was armadillo vault at the Venice Biennale that was designed by by block research group so in terms of geometric research in terms of fabrication it's it's an amazing thing but when you see how this was constructed and the amount of false work it was used because they had this high precision false work. Also, uh, you know, the stone was brought from Texas. And and, and these are kind of no- amount of knowledge, availability of digital tools and availability of funds that the context where my research was happening is just not available. So um, I think this is kind of the, the question of false work. The masonry is used less because of this. Uh, once there is an opportunity kind a of financial opportunity to do this amazing research I mean amazing things are being done and it's almost a pity so I still believe there is a middle ground that there is a still possibility to engage with stereomatomy be it with natural stone or reconstituted stone. Now, there is a lot of research on, on trying to avoid uh, false work and kind of having this um, self-supporting structure during the construction. And just now I came across a paper that, that deals with this.
0: I'm not a, an expert on stereotomic designs by any mean, but my experience uh, working in Southern Africa and seeing here in Portugal some flat domes and the Nubian vaults has actually shown me uh, how these structures can work by using a central element that supports the, the structures as it's being put together uh, using a simple dome principle or the vaulted uh, arch. Uh,
1: I think uh, you, you can achieve, like with brick, something like uh, Catalan or Gustavino vaulting, where you have a small brick, brick. you rely on fast setting cement that is almost like glue, right? Um, and then you work in three layers and one kind of cantilevers and creates a support for the next layer. So working with small brick and uh, cement, you can avoid that, like in the work on Oxendorf, probably you're familiar with the work of uh, South African architect, Peter Rich. Uh, uh, yeah, the domes he, he did with together with Oxendorf and Philip Block. And when it comes to stone, like multi stone and similar stone in Puglia, um, uh, cement and, and, and limestone do not really go together because uh, the cement and the salts from the cement uh, damage the limestone. And limestone is very brittle, so you need to work with the ra- large blocks heavy blocks. So it's kind of opposite of Catalan vaulting, because you, you, you have to have large blocks, heavy blocks, and not uh, use cement, uh, the gluiness of the cement, avoid cement. So then, yes, um, then to avoid false work, you need to work with the shape, shape of the block. Um, there is a church in Malta, Mostadome, where they manage to avoid uh, false work, um, relying mostly on corbelling, and this kind of, as you're saying, placing one block and another block behind it to kind of pull it back with its weight. And um, they could obviously go to a certain distance, and then the very, very top is closed with, uh, in a metal. I don't know if it was bronze or something, um, copper. It is possible, but it's tricky, yes.
0: I found it really interesting to discover later in your research that... Some of the final structures you were planning and designing and working on were inspired by this mixed hybrid technology, which takes a lot from history and from Malta, using an arch that would need some support in terms of false work, but then becomes a basis and a, and a self-supporting structure for the corbel structures that come up against it.
1: Yeah, I, I was investigating this notion of topological interlocking. Working on a planar surface, uh, it's similar to reciprocal frames. So you would have one block, that uh, one ashlar that would at the same time be supported by, let's say, neighbors on the left and right, but supports neighbors on top and bottom. So it's kind of uh, working in this kind of interlacing thing. And I was trying then to interpret somehow that on on a vaulted structure, but as you said, there would be an arch placed on false work, on, on centering, and then other blocks would be kind of using this Um, interlocking techniques to to corbel out and then kind of lock in some smaller sub-arches but um, a lot of models I made uh, never had the opportunity to to scale it up.
0: You mentioned that part of that had to do with uh, the fact that you were not in Switzerland you did not have ETH behind you and therefore uh, a six-axis CNC cutter was not something readily and, and easily available. If we think of stone as a material for the future and how it could be used from a structural point of view, how much do you think it has to evolve in terms of a technology understanding also to reduce waste? Because once you extract stone from the ground, there's no way of putting it back for quite a few thousand years. The
1: main issue is not availability of digital tools. It's what's called instrumental knowledge. is knowledge how to use this, these tools. Uh, so in Malta, you would find available six axis um, circular saw, but the issue was of uh, working with kind of preset buttons or work so if you want to kind of guide the machine uh, to do something um, you you would need a bit of to go behind the scenes and do a bit of uh, hacking and, and uh, scripting your own things and working with G code. Uh, so, so and obviously that takes time um, and takes a lot of trial and error. So I think that the 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 trick is the machines that are available and, and or could be made available. Uh, it is getting that knowledge to appropriate the machine beyond the kind of preset things and really take control of all its capabilities and to use it proficiently. I am a bit wary about um, use of stone, especially in Malta. We have enormous amount of uh, built heritage that was built during the time of the Knights. Then the British period, extracting new stone for new buildings, I'm a bit wary about that. We need to really be conserving stone for the generations to come, upkeep the enormous amount of built heritage you could let's say, import the stone from China from it but I think there is something absolutely wrong about restoring with stone that is not Maltese um, on the other hand there is a building boom in Malta uh, happening quite often in concrete most often in concrete. So there is a lot of wasted stone and stone being demolished. A colleague from my faculty, Professor Dion Bouhadjard, he developed a patent to use reconstituted stone, and that is using demolition waste and then turning it into sand and, and casting blocks from that. And I think there is opportunity there with a good amount of research. It could be done even 3D printed or doing complex molds. And Torba, limestone screed, where well, Maltese is store, but like every every quarry you pass, and there's quite a number in Malta, you always see the sign um, screed for free. I think a reconstituted stone possibly could give us even more in terms of thermal capacity and uh, environmental issues and structural issues. And I think the stone, which some one of the publications predicted, will be running out by 2036, which I really hope is a wrong estimate should be kept uh, for upkeep of the heritage.
0: I think it's, it's a huge uh, question you point to, because Malta, uh, as you've mentioned and as I've read, is pretty much a, a one-material uh, country. You know, everything in Malta that's historical has always been built in stone. And even some of the more recent buildings, when uh, Renzo Piano came to do the new parliament building, it was also built... In, in stone, be it just cladding. So the history of Maltese architecture is tied into a material that's running out. So how do people in and how do architects, both student architects that you teach, but also architects that you have as colleagues and friends that are practicing, how do they look at stone as a material for Malta?
1: It's definitely um, deeply rooted with the, with the Maltese identity. I, I think, Almost, it is identity. Like Maltese vernacular, Maltese architecture is identified with Maltese stone. Like th- that is absolutely. And in a, a discussion just before COVID started, but we had between the students uh, of our faculty organized, inviting several uh, different people on panel, uh, the team about Maltese identity, the notion of stone was always coming up. Uh, as the main thing. But obviously then it becomes tricky how do you use stone with kind of in a full respect and, and with the with this notion that it's running out. Uh, but uh, there are there are contemporary buildings built in stone. Uh, sometimes they use you know double skin walls like they before. Uh, often it's just the outer facade the inner inner wall would be in concrete or sometimes it's just cladding. So you would kind of do an arch in uh, not my colleagues, <laughs> but uh, you would do an arch and then uh, in concrete and then clad it in in stone and pretend it's made out of wasers. So um, I- even now, the it's also tricky because the craft of masonry, like the knowledge, is disappearing and good masons are are uh, difficult to find. Because you obviously, for stereotomy, for uh, working mares, you need that tacit knowledge, that knowledge that you can't have from the books that you just get through experience of working with stone.
0: Do you think this is something that could be digitized? Do you think we could start developing or or someone could set up a specific company mainly digital technology, to cut and learn how to cut a series of the different ashlars that are needed for stereotomy to work. And in doing so, could they do it in a relatively efficient way, maybe recycling older stone? Don't feel
1: 100% competent to answer this question, but I can tell you about the conversation I had with a student of mine who also took um, um, masonry costs and worked with masons. He had a difficulty passing the, the final test because he doesn't have the physical strength to cut the stone with, uh, uh, with what was required. Um, but he, he told me then uh, through that he met quite a number of stone masons. And he said this tested knowledge also includes of, um, understanding what the stone, which part of the building will it be from touching it from knocking on it from kind of <laughs> feeling um, uh, and uh, one of these masons told him that the word is annoyed Renzo Piano's uh, louvers cut out of CNC six axis CNC uh, that are on multi- new parliament building they don't really work like sometimes these pieces are cantilevered, and you can see that stone is not the stone for cantilevering but the um, the aim, the design intent of the parliament building was to kind of look like it's from one block, so you don't vary. Uh, you try to keep almost like naturally uh, you would find stone, but in Mason's mind you do vary, and and you know you you kind of match. Uh, the stone quality, which depends on the depth of, uh, of the where it's extracted, or you know, different things, you match the quality of the stone with its position in the building.
0: It's a very yeah. empirical knowledge.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. So something. So if you can, I guess the geometry and cutting um, could be something resolved, but I think really this full understanding of stone and how it works um it's something i think it's kind of learning through doing it's the
0: only way yeah i think that takes me to one of my favorite debates in architecture which is at some point there was a very tenuous uh, line between who was an architect and who was a master mason or a master builder and then through time and through professionalization the the professions drifted apart but when we design a piece of carpentry or when we design uh, a building, we always rely on specialists that will understand it. But back in the day when the cathedrals were being built, like you said at the beginning of this conversation, a lot of times the design could have been shaped more by the master mason than the architect, because at the end of the day, they knew how things were being put together.
1: Okay, so in the book Alphabet and Algorithm Mario Carpo, he he kind of blames that split on Alberti because uh, he downgrades the the role of the person on site and he he kind of says that uh, a carpenter is nothing but a tool in hands of an architect which I think it's really a terrible way to, to look at to, to start a collaboration you know, with. And, uh, and I think uh, that from Alberti onwards there is this push where uh, you kind of uh, codify your idea in a drawing and then that idea needs to be understood by the people who are making architecture. So it's kind of this split between the people that think and design and people who build, and the drawing comes at the center of it. So at one point, uh, architects are almost uh, producing drawings, right? Very exact, well-codified drawings, and that have to kind of unambiguously understand by, uh, by makers to then represent it on site. And I think exciting thing about uh, digital architecture and digital tools, I mean, I'm not going to go as far as Kolarovic, who in 2003 overzeastically kind of said that um, we will be master builders again. I don't think we're replacing the builders and contractors and, and, and craftspeople, but as architects, uh, by having uh, digital tools, fabrication tools, making becomes easier for architects, and you can kind of understand things and prototype things and have a better conversation because it's not anymore a drawing you're producing. You're still producing a prototype. You're de- producing part of your facade or part, of, you know. Uh, so, so then um, you're producing a, either a BIM model or a grasshopper model. So the knowledge of other disciplines can go into that model. Um, so it's not a linear process anymore. It doesn't need to be, let's say, a linear process anymore because it's dominantly linear process. You design, you draw, someone else builds. Um, but I think there is this nice um, uh, now platform, a little bit <laughs> going back to that platform of stereotomic drawing of the tree where, where you can build, uh, develop the process of how you design and how you build together, and, and and have the whole team around you help helping you understand, the, you know, material uh, properties, uh, limitations of fabrications, and so on. So I think this is where I see uh, excitement of digital architecture, not in funky forms, uh, but kind of ability to have that uh, that platform for the, all the knowledge to come in.
0: And in a way, it's kind of a, it's a good point for us to sort of wrap up this conversation because it takes you back to almost the start of your research, where the stereotomy and the fact that it has a precise method and it's not just about cutting of stone; it's about the making of the process, the trait that goes with it, and drawn up to prepare and to show the instruction manual of how the stone is put together. Is in a way a precursor of what you can do with the digital technology tools of of today.
1: There are a lot of people who are uh, saying that 20th century was almost like a a step back for the architects um, that uh, in in terms of making, it peaked this Albertian approach. And if we go back to 19th century work, architecture and craft and art was more intertwined, um, it's almost kind of, a lot of them are arguing, let's go back to the end of 19th century and take it from there.
0: <laughs> thank you very much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure as usual. And I hope to see you in Valletta sometime soon and be able to walk through it again and look at all the marvellous stone that, uh, that is there and will be there for the foreseeable future.
1: And I hope, yes, we have another exciting collaboration.
0: Yes, I would very much enjoy that. And once again, thank you. For, for taking part in this podcast. It was a pleasure talking to you. I hope everyone home enjoyed listening to us as well. And um, until next time, bye for now.